All right, Ephesians 6. We finish Ephesians tonight, and uh, uh, I'm wondering what I want to preach next. If you um, have any suggestions for me for a series, a book, or something like that, feel free to come and tell me. I know I've never done that, like taking nominations from the floor, but did someone say short? So you like it when I'm preaching Proverbs, huh? You want more? Okay, I'll give you more. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that at all, but uh, maybe we'd get through the book faster if we did it more services, right? Uh, anyway, um, just seriously, if you have uh, any suggestions for me besides that I just cut it down, uh, let me know. Um, on that Ephesians 6 verse 21 I should have known because you know Caleb has his license now he gave himself a license for sarcasm and so he's going to use it everywhere he goes Heather's shaking her head like yeah she's got an unbearable at home no doubt but anyway Ephesians 6 I want to show you here and this is Paul ending a letter the way he ends letters and that is with words of grace and um, I think that, uh, honestly, that, you know, we're fighting fundamentalists, and so we've been fighting with each other for years. That's kind of what that means. Originally, fighting fundamentalists, they were fighting against something outside of the church, and then it became fighting among the churches. And uh, that is what, you know, they say 99% give the rest a bad name. Um, but, uh, but what we see with Paul, and this extends to every book he wrote, uh, we see a gracious opening and a gracious closing there. And we see Paul expressing uh, his love for the people. And I want to show you his example here, a gracious example, as we see it in these verses, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 21. These are the words of God. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example that Paul raises before us. I pray that we as a church would follow this example and uh, in our dealings with each other and with others even outside of our church, that there would be a grace, uh, a kindness, that is on display in everything that we do. And I pray that you help me, Lord, as I open the word to your people, that uh, we would be encouraged by what we hear from the word of God tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this little closing paragraph gives us some really profoundly helpful truth. The whole theme of Ephesians has been to set forth the blessing of God's church to his people. And uh, that's 
That's my takeaway. God, in the middle of it, Ephesians 3, lays out his purpose, his intention for the church. Ephesians 4, what he wants his church to be and to do in our lives, the role that it plays in our lives. Um, Some really important truth uh, that was pressed home to me as I preached that uh, was that there are certain spiritual blessings that can only come to us through the church. They don't come any other means but the church. That's why we need the fellowship of our assembly of believers. Now here at the end of Ephesians, we get to see uh, put on display uh, the help and blessing that the church is to us as believers. Warren Wiersbe points out, we're not fighting the battle alone. There are other believers who stand with us in the fight, and we ought to be careful to encourage one another. And that's really what Paul is about right here. He is going to encourage the believers in Ephesus, and he's going to do it a couple of ways. And I want you to notice the way that he's going to do it. Through the passage, we gain some insight into the kindly affections, the self-giving love that ought to characterize a church of Jesus Christ. Over the next little while, I want to set this example before you in order to encourage more of this here at Berean within our own fellowship. I think we all recognize the encouragements, but also discouragements of ministry. There are ebbs and flows and ups and downs and peaks and troughs to a church's life. I've noticed it over the years that there are times we're riding high and there are times that we're in the valley. And I think right now is probably one of those times where at least I feel like we're in the valley a little bit. This happens. This is a normal cycle in a church's life here. And we need to understand this. I was talking to a pastor recently and I said, I don't know if every church and every pastor is this way. But there are high points and low points. And it seems like to me that pastors only want to talk about the high points when they're talking with each other. We don't like to say, yeah, we're kind of at a low point right now. No, I said that to the pastor and he said to me, yeah, that's been my experience as well. And he's been pastoring uh, for a long time. And so um, this is, I guess, I'm not the only one. Uh, I suppose there's an encouragement in that. The ministry is people. It is. And, I mean, this is maybe crass here, but when people come, that's encouraging. And when they don't come, that's discouraging. Uh, When we see progress, we're excited. When we don't see progress, we're concerned. We want to see God working in people's lives. We believe that that should be happening in our church. And since we believe it should be happening, we look for it to be happening. Steps being taken, milestones achieved, growth. And this is just the normal course of things, that there are disappointments and setbacks even as we make progress. I remember when I was in my growing years, I mean, when I was growing up instead of out, those years. Um, I remember 
that there were those times where, you know, you didn't grow at all. I wanted to. I'd hang from the chin-up bar, hoping that that would help. You know, I would jump and things like that. I would lay flat on the ground and um, hoping that it would stretch. And then there would just be no real measurable growth. And then I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my leg would hurt bad, right in the middle of the thigh or the, uh, the, the shin bone. It would just ache. And I'd lay there and it would ache. Oh, it would hurt and keep me awake. And then my pants would be too short. The strangest thing. And I'd be there, you know, and the tops of my socks would be a couple inches below the bottoms of my pants. And uh, my mom would look at me and say, I think you outgrew those pants again. And um, that's the way growth happened. And the same thing in churches. The growth happens sometimes through pain, through difficulty, and sometimes it feels like you've stagnated um, a little bit. And so we are, as a church, really pouring ourselves into the work of the ministry, pouring ourselves into each other, um, committing to the work of discipleship here. And listen, we've this year we've lost um, some of our oldest members. Uh, we're losing others, may lose very soon some of our others who have been here with us for many years. And these are things we're going to experience. Uh, we see people leave. We see people come and then they don't stick. We pour into people and invest in them, uh, hoping to see them come along in the Christian faith. And some of them flake out on us. And we feel like it was all in vain. And even sometimes feel like we were used uh, in, in a time of crisis. They came to us in their crisis. And when the crisis passed, then they're done. And they don't respond to us. And it's a new phenomenon. They call it ghosting. Where they just don't reply to you. They don't answer your texts. They don't answer your phone calls. It's like you never existed. Like you were never there. I, you know, we had, uh, I think at the start of the year, a number of people that we were hopeful we would see come along in the faith. And we were excited about what God was doing. And then that they didn't pan out in many cases, not all, but in many cases that has happened. And in others, I, you know, I got a text this afternoon from Amin and Shudi not sure which one is texting me, honestly. I think it's a mean. But texting me to say next Sunday I'm getting baptized. And praise the Lord for that. Um, and we got to have a part in that. And he was thanking me for the church and wanted me to thank you as well for what you put into them. It, it's not in vain. But if I could just be really transparent with you for a moment, I wish we could baptize them here. That's what I wanted. I know that Apollos planted and or Paul planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase and we rejoice in that. But we want to see God 
work here at Berean. We want to see that happen. There are seasons of disappointment that we go through. This happens in our everyday lives. And it certainly happens in the church. There are times of discouragement as well as times of growth and encouragement. And we are taught to pray and not faint. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like in times of disappointment, in times when things aren't going the way they're supposed to be going, we have a tendency, people have a tendency to get a little cranky and cross with each other in those times. But what we really need to do is to rally the troops and be encouraged in these times. Now, Paul sets an example for us of the kind of grace that we should be showing to each other within our church. He sets an example of kindness of thoughtfulness, of affection for God's people, which we should emulate as we travel this pilgrim way together. I want to point out a few specifics then and then encourage you in this calling. Let's consider some specifics from our text. First of all, I want you to notice Paul's kindness to the Ephesians. And that kindness is seen in a simple act that we might not pay attention to or think anything of. But notice what Paul says in verse 21. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. Here is a simple act of kindness on the part of Paul. If Paul was physically able to do so, I believe that he would himself have traveled to Ephesus to meet face to face with these brethren. But Paul was in prison, chained to a Roman soldier. He cannot do it. And so he sends Tychicus to be a help and blessing to give a first hand account of how Paul is doing things that Paul can't or won't express in a letter, Tychicus can go and he can tell the believers there what is going on. He can answer their questions and their concerns. Now, I want you to notice that when Paul refers to Tychicus, he refers to him as a beloved brother and faithful minister to the Lord. Tychicus must have been one of Paul's favorite partners in ministry, He mentions him a number of times. He's mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Sending him to the Ephesians must have been at great cost to Paul. He's in prison, chained to a Roman soldier. He needs encouragement. He needs friendship, companionship, and Tychicus has been there with him, 
ministering to him. A beloved brother, Paul called him. Someone he valued, someone he treasured. Now understand, Paul sending Tychicus to Ephesus was not like sending, you know, your pastor on a plane trip over to Ireland to visit one of our missionaries where I can hop on the train, uh, on the plane, not the train, on the plane on Monday and I can be back in a week or two and I can accomplish a lot on a trip like that and encourage people. It's not like that. The travel was tedious, dangerous, long. Paul knew that he was not going to see Tychicus for a while. He was not going to have the benefit of his face-to-face interaction, the visits that he received from Tychicus, the encouragement that Tychicus was. Now, I believe that Tychicus here is uh, the one writing, like, like Paul is dictating this letter to Tychicus as something Paul often did. And I, I believe, now I'm not certain of this, but it would seem that Tychicus is the one writing the letter itself. So Tychicus is there with Paul. Whether he's writing or not, he is really like a right-hand man to the Apostle Paul. And Paul is going to send him to Ephesus. He's losing the companionship of this man. He's losing the help that Tychicus was. And wouldn't it be easy, if it was you and me, wouldn't it be easy to say, I'm suffering. I'm in prison. I am in bonds for Jesus. I need this man. I can't spare him. I can't give him up. But Paul says that the believers in Ephesus, I think, could use a firsthand account of how I'm doing. Look, Paul definitely could have just written the letter. Could he not? He could have just written the letter and said, this is what's happening. This is how I'm doing. And so on. And wouldn't that have been enough? Couldn't the Ephesians have been satisfied just to get Paul's own account of how he's doing? But, well, you know how this is, right? You get anxious about people. They write you letters. I, I think of the buyers right now. I hope you're praying for the buyers now consistently, regularly. You know, um, Shiloh Buyer, from what we understand, is on her deathbed. I mean, this is, this is a deadly illness. She may not outlive 2023. And I think about them and, and what faithful servants of the Lord that they've been. And, and what a wonderful family. And they were here for our missions conference a year ago. What a wonderful family. I could, I could really enjoy spending time with the buyers. And I know that he's going to write a, a report letter and we're going to hear how Shiloh is doing. But you know, when you're really anxious about them, you want more than that. You want to hear more. And Paul knew that the believers in Ephesus would want to hear more than just what he would write in a letter. They would want to be able to probe and question and ask and find out how do the Roman soldiers treat him and how are people with him and is he encouraged uh, or is he discouraged and what can we do to help him and, and just what is his day like 
and what is its health like and so on. And any number of questions that Paul may not be able to anticipate. But the Tychicus could ease their mind about and answer their questions. And so, and by the way, this is something that we see in the Bible quite often. The concern with face-to-face interaction. You know, text messaging is good. It makes things, you know, communication very efficient. But... We need to remember the, the Bible puts its greatest value on face-to-face interaction. And Paul did too. And since he can't go, he instead sends Tychicus. And he does it for the sake of the Ephesians. Remember that. This is an act of kindness on Paul's part. <clears throat> By the way, Paul didn't send his most useless team member the one who was underfoot and in the way and say, you know, I think I could spare this guy. We'll send him uh, to Ephesus. He sends his beloved brother and faithful minister. He sends not useless. He sends useful to the believers in Ephesus. He gave up something for the church. And Paul sent Tychicus to give a personal update. Again, let this be a reminder to you. All the text messages in the world, all the, you know, thoughts and prayers um, cannot replace the personal touch, the face-to-face interaction. Since Paul couldn't travel to Ephesus, uh, he sent Tychicus. He sent Tychicus so that the people could get a personal account of what he was doing and how he was doing. And the people could ask questions. And they could, again, as I said, ease their mind. The things that they were concerned about that Paul really wouldn't be able to anticipate. And Tychicus, by his presence, would be an encouragement to the church. We all know this. Because we've all had this experience where we see the person, maybe not the person we're concerned about, but someone who's close to them. And we can look them in the eye and we can ask them. We can, we can see how are things really? Tell me. We've done that before. And you know how it can either ease your mind or inform you how you ought to pray a little bit more. I want to show you also Paul's thoughtfulness towards the Ephesians. He desired to comfort their hearts. He knew that Tychicus would be able to do this. Notice what he says in verse 22. But that ye also may know my affairs. I'm sorry, verse 22. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Now, this is interesting because would we not think since Paul's the one in prison that he would be the one who needs to be encouraged and comforted But Paul knows that the Ephesians also need to be encouraged. Like it or not, God raises up certain men that carry the banner and that we look to. And Paul was one of those. He wasn't gloating on his part. God had ordained him the apostle to the Gentiles. These Gentile churches were churches that he himself had planted. No doubt the Ephesians dreaded the day 
though they knew it was coming, dreaded the day when Paul would be taken from them. Paul talks about it in Philippians, does he not? That he knows that he's to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He knows that he's going to depart at some point. He would desire for himself to depart and be with God in glory. <coughs> but he also knows that that will be crushing to the believers in Philippi. This is not arrogance on the part of Paul, but just a recognition of the connection there was between himself and these believers. I I think any parent would recognize this as well. Uh, No parent wants to live long enough to be a great burden on their children, but no parent wants to die before their time either because of the great discouragement the crushing blow that is to the family. And so Paul recognizes that these believers are anxious for his sake. And he wants to be a comfort and encouragement to them. On his way to Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 20, the Bible tells us that Paul stopped by and called for the elders of Ephesus There was a tremendous love between Paul and that church. And in fact, Paul had stayed extra time in Ephesus because the work of the Lord was advancing so well. And he stayed there and preached. And there really was a strong bond between Paul and these believers. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul delivered what were his parting words the last time he saw these brothers. And among the things he said, and it was a lot, he said a lot, but among them, he said, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And Paul continued. But you see the love, his expression of love to these the elders of the church there. But as he came to a finish, the Bible tells us in Acts 20, verse 36, And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him under the ship. That memory is fresh in Paul's heart and mind. He is aware of the investment that these brethren have made into his ministry, and he wants to honor that by keeping them up to date This is the same thing that our missionaries do when they report to us and let us know what's happening in their field. If you invest in something, you want to know the progress. And Paul is updating everyone on the progress of his ministry. He knows what an encouragement this can be. But also, I want you to see his affection for these believers in Ephesus. 
Notice verse 23. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Paul wishes them well. He just passes along his well wishes to these brethren. That really is the point of the passage. He wants them to prosper in the Lord. And so he wishes for them and prays for them that God would give them a constant supply of all the things that are necessary for them to flourish. He prayed for their peace. He's had much to say about peace in this book, right? He, in fact, has outlined the nature of the peace that we enjoy in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make of himself in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Paul has concerned himself with the peace of the church at Ephesus. And now that they have this peace, he blesses them with this peace. He prays for more peace, that they would have not only peace with God, but peace among themselves. This is something, by the way, to be treasured by the church, the peace, the harmony that we enjoy together with each other. He wants them to have more of God's love. And love, he says, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God poured out abundantly on these believers. Love also has been a great theme in this book. The love that we're to have towards each other. But also, in in fact, in in Ephesians, what is it? Chapter 5. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as God, as Christ also hath loved us. And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. So <clears throat> he has this desire for love. He has preached love to the believers. He has preached the love that a husband ought to have for his wife. A love that is modeled for us in the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wishes for them more of this love, a more abundance Abundant experience of the love of Jesus Christ. So that as they enjoy the peace of God, they also will feel his love. And as a result of that, their faith will increase. They'll grow more and more confident in Christ, confident in his love, able to enjoy God because of the peace that they have with him. And so you have peace and you have love. And you have faith. All these things that Paul is wishing, praying for the believers that they would prosper in, that they would flourish in, that they would be blessed by. And then in verse 24, he extends grace to them. Notice that grace be with all them 
that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. He wants the believers here to love the Lord in sincerity, a sincere love, not faked, not pretension, but genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you may not love the Lord as much as the next person. You may not love the Lord Jesus Christ, at least visibly, as much as other people in the church. But make sure that the love that you have for Jesus is sincere love, not put on, not a show for other people. The word sincerity means without corruption, without anything that is fake or phony or false. He wants their love to be constant, without disruptions, without distractions. He doesn't want them to lose that first love, which, by the way, in the book of Revelation, we see that they did. This is a special grace of God. And grace is necessary for it all. It is, as John Stott said it, a wish, a prayer that the members of God's new society may live in harmony as brothers and sisters in his family at peace and in love with him and with each other, together with the recognition that only by his grace can this dream come true. That's what he's praying for, that they would flourish in Christian graces, that they would grow, that they would prosper, that they would overflow with this kind of Christian grace. So these are the specifics that we see here in the text. And now I want to focus on some practical steps to follow. I was working on these steps and I listed out a bunch and I had, I don't know, 12 or 13. And then I thought, well, if I have 12, I could make that be like 10. And then anytime you have 10, you know, what you got to do is have the 10 commandments. Right. So here you go. I see that impressed look on your faces. The Ten Commandments of Extending Grace within the church. All right. Commandment number one. Thou shalt seek each other out. Now, these are not super profound. Thou shalt seek each other out. Be involved in each other's lives. Without prying. All right. There's an involvement that, you know, what they said about the mother-in-law that you could tell who she loved by the haunted by the hunted look on their face. Um, Don't don't pry. Don't don't be nosy with it. Check in, check in, check up on each other, care for each other. Notice when people are down, know people well enough to know when they're discouraged, when they're down. Commandment number two, thou shalt set self aside. Paul sent Tychicus, even though he was helpful to Paul. He put the Ephesians' best interest ahead of his own, and we need to do the same for each other. Look out for each other in that way. Set yourself aside. Commandment number three, thou shalt know when thou art contrary. All right. I just 
I got to stick with the wording, right? The King James language here. All right. It happens to us all. You wake up crossways. um, You're in a bad mood. Sometimes you don't expect it, you know, and then something happens and all of a sudden you feel that rising irritation, that rising frustration with someone else. The answer is not to withdraw and avoid everyone. Now, that might be the safe answer so that you don't do something that you're going to regret later. But that's not the answer. The answer is to recognize it, commit it to the Lord and ask him to help you fight that spirit. All right. That's there have been times when I'm coming in and I'm feeling that irritation and I'm saying, Lord, you know, I I have to I have to be here today. I have to teach my class. I can't just go home. Uh, Lord, please help me to be patient because I'm going to tend to be impatient here. Do that. When we are contrary, we usually become or we have a tendency to become very self-absorbed. I'm frustrated, I'm irritated, and I'm all focused on me. I'm focused on that feeling of irritation I'm focused on what it is that I'm upset about. That would be the time to take your eyes off yourself and put them on someone else. The fourth commandment, thou shalt keep short accounts. Thou shalt keep short accounts. If you speak crossly or say something that provokes another person or causes offense, make it right. Immediately make it right. You know when you cross the line. If you know that you wrong someone, go to them yourself. Don't make them come to you. If you can see that there's a problem, do your best to fix it. Be gentle, tender in how you approach them. If you're upset with someone, pray that you'll handle it the right way if you need to handle it. If you need to approach them, pray that you'll approach them with the right spirit. Bathe it in prayer. Be very careful. If you don't need to approach them about it, let it go. Sometimes you should just let it go. Sometimes you're being peevish. You're being petty. Learn to recognize when that is. Sometimes you misread people, right? You, you read it a certain way, and it's probably not that way. And if you wait just a little bit, you'll discover that to be the case. Remember that love covers a multitude of sins. And there's a part of us that says, you know, we rebel against the idea of ever covering up anything except ourselves. But love covers a multitude of sins. Remember that. Commandment number five, thou shalt pray for one another. Pray for each other. Pray fervently for each other. Don't pray superficial, passing, mindless prayers. And Lord, bless so-and-so. 
and Lord bless so-and-so, and Lord bless so-and-so. Don't have a fill-in-the-blank kind of prayer. Pray fervently for the real needs that you see that others have, not the things that you think they need to fix in their life. Lord, please help so-and-so not to irritate me so much. Please help so-and-so not to be such a doofus. And so on. All right? But pray specifically. This is where you know each other's needs. You know each other, and you know what the needs are, and you pray for those needs. Pray constantly for each other. There should be a regular routine of praying through the people in the church. When you're in bed at night and you can't sleep, start going through the names of people in the church and praying for them. And in your prayer time in the morning, think through the people in the church. Know what, what needs there are and pray for those needs. Don't, like I said, don't just pray against the, the annoying parts of that person. Pray for their prosperity. Pray for their blessing. Pray that God would help them and encourage them and lift them up and strengthen them and make them better. <clears throat> Paul gives us the subject matter, what we should pray for, really simple things, but praying for peace, praying for love, praying for faith, praying for grace for one another. These are things that we ought to pray for each other. Pray that your brother will flourish in the Lord. Pray that God will bless him with an abundance of these things of peace and love and faith and grace. The sixth commandment, thou shalt seek to encourage one another. Just as Paul wanted to be an encouragement to the brethren in Ephesus, he was concerned about that. In his, in his time in prison, in his time of trial and difficulty, he was concerned about these brethren enough to send Tychicus, his beloved brother, and just as Paul wanted to be an encouragement to them, learn what encourages the people around you. Now, the best way to learn how to encourage other people is to take note of what encourages you. Okay? And I'm going to point out some things that, again, are pretty practical here. But I want you to pay attention to me. <clears throat> when you see that a brother or sister is down... Try to boost them up. If God has blessed you, seek to be a blessing to others. But this is where I want you to pay attention. Okay? Your blessing might add to your brother's discouragement. Okay? Here's what I mean. Everything is going badly for somebody. It's just all, I mean, miserable Failure, they're feeling like a failure. And you come along and tell them a list of all the great things that God has done for you recently. Hint, he's probably not encouraged by that. He probably will tell you, praise the Lord with you. But in his mind, he's thinking, I must really be abandoned by God. All these people around me are seeing so much blessing. It's interesting. I was having breakfast with a pastor a couple weeks ago. 
And he said, Pastor Malinak, he said, I see this stuff on Facebook, you know, where people say we had six people saved and baptized this weekend. And I feel like we haven't seen anyone saved and baptized in a while. That discouraged me. Pastor Kirkman was here for our missions conference. and He talked about the fact that uh, a pastor actually approached him and said, when you report your numbers and all these glowing reviews of what's happening, there's, uh, there are other guys who are not seeing that happen right now. And they see that and they think that they're a failure. We have to be mindful of this. Now, listen, it's not that I don't rejoice in good things that God does for you. I do. But I also am not highly encouraged by that. You know what encourages me? It encourages me when people say, you know, this was a help to me. Or I really enjoyed this. Meaningfully. I say not, not the, you know, pat me on the hand on the way out the door kind of thing. Right? But another thing that encourages me, and this is weird. All right, but the pastor calls me up and says, man, I've been going through a tough time and the Lord just really helped me with this thought. And I hear that and I'm encouraged by it. It lifts me up. It lifted him up and it lifts me up as well. It's strange that I would be encouraged by something you have struggled with. Maybe we're all morbid. Maybe I'm the only morbid person. But it helps me to know that I'm not the only one struggling. And it helps me to know that God encouraged your heart in the face of a struggle. That will encourage my heart as well. It reminds me to wait on the Lord. To wait patiently for him. The seventh commandment. Thou shalt wish the best for each other. Nothing that I just finished saying. Should give you a license to resent. When good things happen to your brother. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul wishes the best for the Ephesians. Here's here's another thing that we have to guard against. The spirit of rivalry. Oh, it can rise up very quickly. The spirit of rivalry. It happens sometimes between parents. Their kids are in the same grade. And it just automatically becomes a competition, not between the students, between the parents because of how much my identity is wrapped up in my kids and their accomplishments are my accomplishments and their failures are my failures. And so if your son beats my son, gets a better grade than him, well, that spirit of rivalry not only doesn't allow me to rejoice in that, but actually causes me to resent it. 
and to find some, and, and this is how you can tell that that's happening in your life. Because, you know, your son's rival gets an A plus and your son gets a C. And you say, yeah, but at least, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but at least my son's not like him. I take his C over that boy's attitude. This is the kind of thing where we feel like we have to cut down the other person and be critical of the other person because this keeps us, prevents us from being able to rejoice in what the Lord has blessed your kids with or blessed you with. We're not, listen, we are in a competition, but the competition is not among ourselves. The competition is against the devil, against the world. Don't forget who the enemy really is. If you find yourself disappointed when someone prospers or when you hear someone else commended, you better check that. That's a dangerous thing. If God blesses others, that does not mean you are being punished. My punishment is twofold. Not only did I not succeed, but he did. My rival did. The eighth commandment is, thou shalt rejoice when God blesses others. Thou shalt rejoice when God blesses others. Give thanks for each other. Give thanks for the blessings that others enjoy. This habit, by the way, will help you in the rivalry with other people. But also, we should learn to recognize a problem in our own hearts when others prosper, and I resent that. It, period. That, that is a you problem. That is a heart issue, and you need to deal with that. If you sincerely care for each other, then you'll be glad when others are blessed. Even if it is at your own expense, you'll be blessed by it. The ninth commandment, thou shalt be a help when others face a crisis. Thou shalt be a help when others face a crisis. It's not helpful for you to point out their problem, by the way. That's not what I mean by being a help. To come along in the face of their crisis and say, I told you, I told you that this was going to happen. That's not the time. All right. You know, um, we just had a crisis up at the camp, as you know, uh, as the snow came tumbling down and tore a bunch of stuff off the roof with it. That may or may not cost us a lot of money. And um, in that moment, that's not the time to come along and say, I told you we needed to shovel off the roof. <clears throat> that's when I might want to throw you headfirst into the snow pile. If you say that to me, look for ways to help and encourage. And that's a part of forbearance. Listen, if you warned me in the past, that we probably should have done that, um, and now it happened, you warned me. All right, now let's, let's clean up the mess with that. <clears throat> it's not the time to say, I told you so. Um, and in fact, when you go along and with that smug, you know, thing, the result of that is just 
more resentment, more bitterness that comes along. If you saw it coming, but you didn't say anything, now is not the time to say, I knew I should have said something about that. Thanks. I mean, we all appreciate that you foresaw this. We're impressed. Congratulations. However, there's a time and a place for it. All right. The real help that people need in their lives does not consist in you tooting your own horn or promoting your own foresight or discernment or wisdom or whatever. What people need is for you to come along and say, how can I help? What can I do? It's it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. It happens. People listen to you and appreciate you more when they know they were at fault and you are forbearing with them in that fault. And look past it and simply come along and say, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to be here for you. We're going to go through this together. But if you say or even act like they got their comeuppance, you miss the opportunity to be a help, no matter what help you might offer. The 10th commandment is this. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The unity, the harmony, the peace, the fellowship that we enjoy at Berean Baptist Church, it is a gift from God. It is a blessing. Treasure that. If you treasure something, you don't trash it. If you treasure it, you don't leave it out in the backyard. If you treasure it, you keep it where it goes. You, when you take it out, you take it out tenderly, carefully. You handle it with care. Not every church enjoys unity. Our church has not always enjoyed unity. And there will be times when that unity will face some deep stress and come under pressure. We all have to say that that unity is far more important than my feelings, far more important than me getting my way, far more important than me one-upping somebody else or getting in the last word in a dispute. I trust that we'll know what to do with this. God has blessed us abundantly as a church. Our fellowship is a treasure. It's a great treasure. Let's do our best to improve it. Thank the Lord for it and stand together, strive together for the faith of the gospel.